Junior hires are back from retreats. Isn't that wonderful? Some of them are in here. Others of them should be coming in, so uh, we will anticipate their arrival shortly, I'm sure. At least one I know. Today is our annual book fair when we seek to build up the ministry of our library. I want to thank those of you who participated. Frankly, it's been a little bit disappointing. We've got an awful lot of materials out there left that we'd hope to be able to add to our library. If you can help us out, uh, please stop by the table and see Sherlyn. Uh, she'll be there yet, wherever you are. I haven't seen you yet here tonight, but uh, there you are back there. Uh, she will be able to assist you so that we can add that material to the library for use of everyone in our church, but you get the first crack at checking it out. The last time we were together talking about the theme of the coming kingdom, I talked about some of the false notions regarding Jesus coming again. Let me just remind you of five basic facts regarding the coming of Jesus Christ in his second advent. In the first place, it is still future. It is not something that has happened or is happening at the believer's death, but rather the second coming of Jesus Christ is still future. We are warned in the scriptures against time setting. We do not do that. On the other hand, we are exhorted to be watchful because we do not know the hour or the day when our Lord will return. And so we are said, told to be prepared for his coming. It is still future. Secondly, his second coming will occur in two phases. We've talked about this, but let's remind ourselves that he is coming in the first phase for his church, the bride. The rapture of the church. That is when he comes back into the atmosphere of the clouds of the air and calls out his people to join him there and then to go back to heaven with him. That's phase one. Phase two of his return comes later when he returns actually to the earth. In the rapture, he comes for his saints. In his return, his second coming, he comes with his saints to the earth. His first coming, as best as we can understand the scripture, at least from my understanding of it, is invisible to the world. That is, it will not be seen by the world. Certainly, the calamities that will take place around the world because the disappearance of multiplied millions of people will have an impact of some sort. But his coming will be invisible in the rapture. But in the return to the earth, every eye will see him. It is visible. The third fact is that it's a personal coming. The Lord Jesus is coming himself. It's not a spiritual return. It is a bodily return to the earth. Number four, it will precede and usher in a new age upon the earth. We call that the kingdom or the millennium, which means thousand years, because that kingdom will last a thousand years. And then following a brief intervention to finally and fully deal with evil, that kingdom will be extended on into eternity. And finally, his coming again to earth will bring judgment upon the Christ-rejecting world. Now, it is that aspect that I'd like to fill out a little bit for us tonight 
as we think about the coming kingdom. Tonight, specifically, the retribution of the king. There are many judgments spoken about in the Bible. Several of them are related to you and to me as believers in this age. There is the judgment that took place at the cross upon our sin, where the Lord Jesus Christ was cursed for us, that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law, the judgment at the cross that he bore on our behalf. And then there is the judgment that takes place through chastening in this age, as our Lord deals with us as his beloved sons, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens as a father his son, in whom he delights, the judgment of chastening. And then there is the self-judgment that takes place in this age. 1 Corinthians 11 says that we ought to examine ourselves, that we not be brought into judgment with the world. And so we are to examine ourselves to be sure that we're walking obediently to the Lord, self-judgment. And then there is the bema judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, which will occur after the rapture and in heaven, or between here and heaven. But at least it seems before we get there, we will have experienced that examination before the Lord for our works in this world. That has nothing to do with whether we're saved or not. Bless God, that was determined at the cross. Our sins were dealt with there. And when we trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, that judgment at the cross fully dealt with our sins and it secured for us a home in heaven forever. But the Bema Seed judgment is for our service for the Lord. Now tonight we want to talk about three future judgments which will occur at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first one is found, if you will turn please with me, in the book of the Revelation in the 19th chapter. We have been here before recently, but let's look again at this particular aspect of the truth that is revealed to us in Revelation 19. Here we have the judgment of God upon the Antichrist and his armies. That is judgment number one that occurs when Jesus Christ returns to the earth. Verse 19, And I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, in the language of Revelation, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. The one upon the horse is the Lord Jesus Christ, described in the previous verses as King of kings and Lord of lords. His army, clothed in white and fine linen, coming down out of heaven with him. And it says, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, that is, the religious leader, who will be the front man, as it were, for this political messianic figure. He will bring the worship of the world to Antichrist, as it says here. The false prophet who performed the signs in his, the beast's presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. 
These are the first two inhabitants of that eternal place of condemnation for those who are lost. And for the first 1,000 years, they are the only two people who are in that lake of fire. The eternal residence, the eternal jail and prison, the place of incarceration and punishment for those who are unsaved. Now it goes on to say, And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now the birds are mentioned in verses 17 and 18. We did not take time to read about them, but that is God's way of cleaning up the carnage of that battle called the Battle of Armageddon. You will notice that at the coming of Christ, not only the false prophet and the beast are dealt with, but all of those who followed them in their armies are slain. They are killed. And their bodies then are dealt with in the manner that is mentioned here. As I understand my Bible, the souls of those people who are slain at that point go to the same place where the souls of the lost go now, and that is to Gehenna hell, not to the lake of fire. They will be brought back from hell to stand before God in the last judgment and then to go to the final place of incarceration. And so there is this immediate and initial judgment dealing with those who have come in the armies to fight in the battle of Armageddon. That is the first judgment. Now, of course, there will be many people living upon the earth in those days who will not be in those armies. And there will be saved and unsaved. There will be Jew and Gentile. These need to be dealt with by the justice of God. God needs to ferret out from among the people of the world those who are His through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous, so that they may enter into the millennium, into the kingdom. Those who are unrighteous, those who have not believed in Jesus Christ as Savior, will at that time be judged slain, and will not be allowed to enter into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's look in the book of Matthew to begin with the following two judgments. The judgment of all the people of Israel. Let's think of them first. Now we're just going to look here briefly at uh, only the first of the parables in Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. And without going through it in detail, let me just remind you that there are ten virgins who are described here as having lamps. They are waiting for the bridegroom with his bride to come. My understanding of this parable, and there is a considerable difference of opinion about this parable, but of course those who are right take this position. (laughs) I say that in jest, you understand. 
My opinion is that these ten virgins represent symbolically the nation of Israel. Five of these are prepared for the coming of the bridegroom with his bride. They have oil in their lamps. The oil representing uh, most likely the Holy Spirit and the blessing of salvation that comes through uh, his presence in the life of the believer. And then there are the five that have no oil in their lamps. They are caught unprepared. They seem to symbolically represent those Jews that are not prepared for the coming of the bridegroom with his bride. And so we see immediately that uh, like the Gentiles, so among the Jews there will be those who will believe and those who will not have believed. And they will be separated at this point. Let's go back to the Old Testament to get a prophetic view of this in the book of Ezekiel and the 20th chapter. When you have found Ezekiel chapter 20, look with me at verse 33, which is a promise from God to the Jewish people. He says, As I live, surely with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. God is saying to his people that there will yet come a day when the theocracy, the rule, the reign of God over his people Israel will be consummated. God says, I shall be king over you and I shall bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I shall bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. And there I shall enter into judgment with you face to face. So here in this location called the wilderness of the peoples, God says through Ezekiel, I will gather you, my people Israel, to judge you face to face. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. And I shall make you pass under the rod. And I shall bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I shall purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I shall bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Now God is saying here that there is an examination time coming for the people of Israel as a nation. He will cause them to pass under the rod. That is an action that is mentioned earlier in the book of Leviticus, the 27th chapter, where God tells his people to bring out from among their flocks a tenth as an offering to him, a tithe. And so they were to hold out the rod over the sheep, 
the goats as they passed underneath, and they were to count out. And every tenth one, the rod was to go down, and that one was the Lord's. I don't believe that Ezekiel is saying that only a tenth of the Jews will be separated out and be the Lord's. But I think the point is that God is going to cause them to pass under a rod of examination and judgment. And of course it is those who are people of faith who have trusted in Jesus as their Messiah who will be allowed to pass into the kingdom as the Lord's own. But the Lord will purge out the rebels and those who have transgressed against him. Turn with me again to the book of Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament. And here the third chapter. We have in verse 1 a prophecy concerning the coming of John the Baptist, the messenger who would come before the Lord. And then it mentions also in verse 1, the Lord himself. Behold, he is coming, that is the Messiah. But then in verse 2 it says, who can endure the day of his coming? You see in the Old Testament when they talked about the coming of Messiah, they saw coming one and coming two together. They had no reference by which to separate those two. And that's what Malachi is doing here. But in verse 1, there is the first coming, John the Baptist preceding Christ and him coming, uh, Jesus coming to his people. But now in verse 2, we see from our perspective a time lapse between verse 1 and verse 2. Because in verse 2, it begins to deal with cleansing and judgment. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And like Fuller's soap. In other words, when he comes, as described in verse 2, he will come to purify and to cleanse his people, the Jews. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Look in verse 5. Then I will draw near to you, the Lord speaking, for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And then he reminds them that he does not change. God is faithful. He is immutable. He is merciful to those who repent. He is just with those who will not repent and brings judgment to them. And that does not change. In Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, a phrase that describes the consummation and the completion of this age in which we live. When primarily Gentiles believe, and in part Israel believes, but only a remnant, only a few Jews. 
He says, when this time has been consummated, then all Israel shall be saved. It does not mean there every individual Jew. But it means enough of them that they will represent the whole of the nation of Israel. And so there will be in that day when Jesus Christ comes again a gathering of the Jewish people for judgment. Those who have believed on Jesus as their Christ, those who have repented of their their wicked rejection of him, and who have believed on him and received him, they will enter into the kingdom that has been promised to their peoples for lo these many, many generations, all the way back to Abraham. Those who have not believed will be purged out, will be slain, and will not enter into the kingdom. But now what about the Gentiles? Let us return to the Gospel of Matthew. And this time we will go to the last part of chapter 25. Where there is the judgment of the sheep and the goats. I am assuming that most of you, if not all of you, are familiar with this passage. Therefore, I am not going to take time to read it. But I would point out to you that it says that this judgment will take place when the Son of Man comes in His glory and the angels with Him. Keep in mind that this is the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. This is not at the rapture of the church. This is when He comes back to the earth. Here now is a third judgment, and it deals with the rest of the citizens of the world who have not already been dealt with, either in the first judgment with the armies or the second judgment with the Jewish people. Now we have everybody else gathered before the Lord. And there are, it seems, three groups of people that are in view in this particular judgment. In the first place, he talks about the sheep who are on his right hand. And then he talks about, secondly, the goats on his left hand. And then he talks about my brethren. You notice that? So there are three groups of people. All of them, or at least the sheep and the goats, are Gentiles. My brethren, Jesus speaking, refers to Jewish people and uh, most likely, particularly those Jewish people who during the tribulation will be the proclaimers of the gospel of the kingdom. Those who will fan out across the world despite the threat of persecution from Antichrist so that they may preach Jesus Christ to those who have never heard the gospel. Those people whom Jesus calls my brethren will be in tremendous distress. The pressure will be immense on them as they are sought out by the forces of Antichrist that they might be slain and killed. 
But God will preserve them, and the way he will preserve them, these Jewish evangelists, missionaries, the way he will preserve them is through believing Gentiles who will evidence their faith by caring for them. They will give them that cup of water. They will give them that clothing. They will visit them in prison. These believing Gentiles will evidence their faith because of their willingness to identify with and, yes, help to protect those Jewish evangelists who will go throughout the earth. Those are the sheep on the right hand, to whom the Lord says in verse 34, Come you, who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and so on. And they say, when? And he explains that uh, it was when his brethren came in need. They cared for his brethren. And that is evidence of the fact that they believed. This is not teaching here salvation by works. That would be in contradiction to what the rest of the Bible teaches regarding the grace of God. They are not brought into the kingdom because of their good works in feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting those who are in prison. They are brought into the kingdom because of their faith, which is evidenced in their works. But what about the goats? What about those on the left hand? These are the unsaved Gentiles who, if they did not participate in the persecution of the Jewish evangelists, at least refused to assist them. And that likewise is evidence of their unbelief, their unwillingness to associate with the people of God who are preaching the gospel. Their unbelief is evidenced by their works, and because of their unbelief, our Lord says to them, verse 41, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And so those who are unsaved, these Gentiles who are unsaved, will at this point be sent away from the presence of the Lord to be slain and to enter into the fires of hell for judgment. This is not the great white throne judgment that comes later. This is a judgment that occurs before the millennium. And the purpose of these three judgments is to deal with the whole population of the globe. Now remember that half or more than half of the population of the world will have died by this time in the terrible judgments of the tribulation period. And yet we are looking at a mass of people who will stand before the Lord, now returned from heaven, to be judged. Those who are righteous through faith will enter into the kingdom age. They will enter into that kingdom in bodies just like we have now. 
and they will reproduce. And there will be a population explosion that is unparalleled, except perhaps in Grace Church Roseville, uh, in the millennial reign, as there is uh, no death to take people away. The disease is subdued, and there is not war. And so the population will grow tremendously in that thousand-year reign of Christ because righteous people will enter into it, Jews and Gentiles from nations of the world. Their children then will have the opportunity to personally believe or to reject Jesus Christ. We'll deal with that at another time. But the purpose of the judgments is to bring only the righteous into the kingdom and those who are unsaved will be shut out, and that forever. As we look at the judgments here, and we see our Lord seated upon a throne of judgment, how glad I am that by the grace of God I see Him today seated on a throne of mercy. For my sins would bring me into judgment before Him so that He would have to say to me, Depart, you cursed, were it not for the fact that His precious blood was shed for my sins. And He led me to believe on Him and to receive Him as Savior so that I am now found righteous in His sight. And I look at Him upon a throne of mercy and grace. And my friend, that is the opportunity of every one of you. I recognize tonight that most of you have trusted Christ as Savior, but lest there be one here who has never trusted Christ, will you understand that you will see him one day and he will be seated on a throne? Oh, that you may see him now on a throne of mercy with arms outstretched to you, pleading with you to receive him. And that you would receive him. That you might not one day have to see him upon a throne of judgment. For the unsaved, the judgments that we've looked at are dreadful. They are dreadful. The weeping and wailing, the sorrow, the remorse that will take place on that day. Regarding the judgment of the Gentiles, Joel says it's in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. We do not know precisely where the Valley of Jehoshaphat is. There is no place in the Bible geographically so named. Jehoshaphat means God judges. And that's significant because it's the valley where God judges. But there are those, and I tend to agree with them, uh, who say that this valley isn't yet, but that it will be that valley which will be created in Palestine when Jesus Christ's feet touch the Mount of Olives and the mountain splits in two and there's a huge valley created east to west that does not now exist and that that valley will be named the Valley of Jehoshaphat and that the Gentiles of the world will be brought to that place so that the righteous may be gathered out to enter into the kingdom and the unrighteous to enter into judgment. And hell. For the saved, these are delightful thoughts. Not that there are people judged away from Christ forever, but that one day the wrongs will be made right. We long for that now. There is so much oppression and injustice in this world. 
Oh, we long for that day when things will be set right, and so it will be on the day when the Lord comes. Let's bow together. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. My friend, if you do not tonight, as you sit right there, have the assurance of your sins forgiven. If you do not know Jesus Christ on his throne of mercy, but rather must face and dread that day of seeing him on a throne of judgment, only to have your sins brought forward and examined and for you to be cast away, oh, will you tonight repent while there is opportunity In that day there is none. Today is the day of salvation. Will you trust him today? Will you turn to him and receive him? I'll be here at the front afterward. Won't you come and say, Pastor, call tonight. I need to trust Jesus Christ. Please, you talk to me. Have someone talk to me that I may make that decision tonight. And Father, so may it be that the Spirit of God would draw one or several this evening to trust in the Savior who shed his precious blood for our redemption. Thank you that for us judgment is past, but we do look forward to that day of examination so that when we are finished with it, we may have something approved to throw at your feet as we worship you. Lord, thank you for the precious promises that are ours. Thank you that for those of us who know Jesus Christ, the future is as bright as your promises, and the best is yet to come for us. Thank you for the hope that is laid up which can never be lost or corrupted, but which is imperishable and ours forever. In Jesus' name, amen. The reality of the earthly and the reality of the heavenly. We are most keen on the reality of the earthly because that is where we relate with our senses. But we must not ignore the reality of the heavenlies. We do so at our own peril. We do not wrestle against human personalities or human movements. We waste our energy and our resources when we focus primarily on that. We wrestle, says Paul, against spiritual powers who are in the dimension of the heavenlies. At this moment, in this room, there are angelic creatures that are observing you and me. Not just this morning, but every day time that we meet. They are here. There are good and there are evil. They watch us. They watch us snooze and get the last 20 minutes of sleep we didn't get on Saturday night. They watch us take notes. They watch as we listen and begin to apply the Word of God to our lives. They watch our reactions to each other. They observe us. The holy angels do that, that they might learn from us something of the wisdom of God. I don't understand how they learn much wisdom from God from us, but that's what they do in Ephesians 3, it tells us. The evil angels watch us, that they might gain some advantage over us. 
They seek, for example, to steal the Word of God as it's being preached through interference and distractions. They seek to keep the Word of God from taking root in our lives so that by the time we get out of church, many things have happened and what we've heard in church is no longer in our minds. You see, they're constantly working and strategizing against us in this struggle that we are in. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. However, it is important for us to understand that these spiritual powers utilize flesh and blood often in strategizing against us. John Calvin said, quote, Wherever the ungodly causes trouble, they are fighting under the banner of Satan and are his instruments for harassing us. Close quote. I can give you some biblical examples of that. Jesus began to express to his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and there suffer and die and be raised again. And Peter responded to him, Lord, God forbid, that will never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. What was Jesus saying? He was saying that that instant of time, that thought had come not from God, but from Satan. Satan was using Peter's flesh and blood to express a thought to Jesus. Jesus recognized what it was, and in speaking to Peter, he addressed Satan and said, Get behind me, Satan. Another example occurred sometime later. When Judas, after having schemed and planned the betrayal of Christ, went out into the night. And it says in Luke 22 and verse 3, Satan entered Judas. Satan then possessed Judas and used his flesh and blood, his body, to carry out this scheme of betrayal. In 1 Thessalonians 2.18, the Apostle Paul writes to his beloved Thessalonian believers, his children in the faith, and he says, I desired to come to you once and then again, but Satan hindered us. Now, he doesn't explain how Satan hindered. But more than likely, it was through people, flesh and blood. Notice he attributes it, though, to Satan. He knows where the real battle is. And then in Revelation 3.9, the Lord warns his beloved people in the church of those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not. He's talking about those in false religion. False religion has always been the most severe persecutor of true religion. And it is so today. My friend, the greatest threat to our faith is not found in communism. The greatest threat to our faith is found in apostate Christianity that has rejected the tenets of the faith and is following idols. There is still a synagogue of Satan today, those who say they are Christians but are not. Satan employs flesh and blood to oppose us. Sometimes it's even people 
amongst us, as it was in the case with Peter. Sometimes it is people outside, as it may have been with the Apostle Paul in in the book of Thessalonians. But we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And the sooner that we realize that our real enemy is not people, the better off we will be. Now there's a word of warning that must be given at this point. We should not interpret every interference and every difficulty in life as Satan's activity. Even the Apostle Paul did not do that. Do you recall that he and the members of the missionary party in Acts 16 desired to go in a certain direction to the north and to the east and they encountered difficulties? And so they went to another place and there were more difficulties and finally they went to Troas and the conclusion of it was the Spirit of Jesus forbid us to go in that direction. So don't be looking for Satan under every rock in your life. Don't interpret every interference as a demon who is opposed to you because that's not always the case. But it can be the case. That is the point here that I'm making. Now what are we to do in the face of such a struggle? It is dangerous to think that you and I can deal with this enemy in our own strength or intellect. Likewise, it is unnecessary for us to be fearful. It is foolish for us to be over-obsessed with this topic too. What are we to do in the face of this struggle with spiritual powers? He tells us three things. Number one, we are to be strong. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's present tense and it's passive. So he is really saying here, be continually empowered. Be strengthened by this resource that God has provided for you. Be strong in the Lord. And that, my friend, is the only name that Satan will recognize. You dare not come against this enemy in your own name or your own strength. If you do, you are in deep trouble. Do you remember what it says in Jude, verse 9? Jude gives us the briefest glimpse at a most curious historical event. After Moses died, there was an argument over his body. Satan wanted to use his body for some purpose. We do not know what it might have been. There was a struggle, Jude tells us, between Michael the archangel and Satan for the body of Moses. Now even an archangel, and my friend, that's up the ladder. Okay? Among the holy angels. There is not a higher created angelic order of the holy angels that we know about than the archangels. One is named Michael. And it says Michael did not even rail against Satan in his own power, but rather that spirit being said to that other spirit being, The Lord rebuke you. Be strong in the Lord. Because that is the name that Satan recognizes and must respect and does fear. How do we be strong in the Lord? 
the power of his might. He tells us by putting on the full armor of God. Here the verb is decisive. He says, do this urgently. It will provide complete protection for you. Put on the full armor of God. To be without it is to leave yourself vulnerable. Vulnerable to the enemy. Put on the full armor of God is to live obediently to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. My friend, there is no substitute for obedience. Some people try to substitute partial obedience. They try to substitute compromise. No. There is no substitute for complete obedience. It is the life of obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ that enables us to put on the armor of God and then to be strong in the Lord. And he tells us that when we do that, we can do something else. We can stand firm against Satan's schemes. To stand firm is a military picture. It means to hold a critical position on the battlefield. Hundreds of stories could be told about soldiers who were given a position to hold. And because they were faithful and courageous to hold that position, the army won the battle. And so our Lord says to us here through the Apostle Paul, Stand firm against the devil. Hold that position you've been assigned. Don't give up. Others in the battle may depend upon you holding your position. It weakens the army when a soldier runs. So put on the full armor of God and be empowered by his might and stand against the devil. There is no reason for us to experience defeat. Defeat. 